Good morning, Emmanuel family and friends. Our verses today will be Isaiah 8, 19 through Isaiah 9, 7. Starting in Isaiah 8, 16, for context, says, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when, you say, when they say to you, inquire of the medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, Zebulun in the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in dark, darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joys, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and, and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Before we begin, let's open in prayer. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, I do pray that you would settle our hearts and our minds, that you would settle the busyness of all that's going on around us, that we would be able to come and worship you in truth and in spirit, Lord. I pray that... This time of the season, we would, with great heart, celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Before we start, I want to give uh, a little backdrop. It will be helpful for us to take a brief overview of the context in, in Isaiah up to this point. Looking back at Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 4, it says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, 
your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of resin in Syria and the son of Ramaliah. Syria and the northern nation of Israel had formed an alliance and intended to overthrow Judah, the house of David. When Ahaz, king of Judah, was made aware of this alliance, Isaiah says, The art of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook. They feared greatly. God sent Isaiah to tell Ahaz in 7.4 to not fear these smoldering stumps because their plot or plan would not stand. The Lord was telling him to have faith in God. King Ahaz was, in a sense, at a crossroads between trusting in God's protective hand or continuing with carrying out a protective alliance with Assyria to defend against his enemies. Turn to 2 Kings. Verses 16, 7 through 9. It says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Taglith Pileser. Got a lot of good names going on today. King of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Assyria, excuse me, Israel, who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. King Ahaz, as I said, was at a crossroads. And so as we progress in Isaiah 7, we find Isaiah's second message to Ahaz, which to much an extent takes a dramatic turn from a message of put your faith and trust in the Lord, not human alliances as with Syria, to a warning of impending disaster at the hands of the Syrians as God's instruments of judgment for his unfaithfulness. It says in Isaiah 7, 7 verse 17, The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since did the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. As Isaiah continues into chapter 8, we see in verses 8, 5 through 8, the people rejoicing over their escape from Syria and Israel, not based on trusting in helping hand in the protection of the Lord. They had chosen the military alliance and trusted in Assyria only to find out Assyria is their oppressor. As we look at Isaiah 8, 16, and 17, MacArthur says, the difference between the remnant, verses 16 to 18, and the hardened nation verses 19 through 22, becomes clear. God, God marks his own as, a loyal, as loyal disciples who preserve the testimony of his word. Isaiah speaks for them with the voice of patient trust in God during hard times. He offers himself and his children as a prophetic presence in their nation, bearing witness to the enduring significance of Zion. Enshrouded in spiritual darkness and sent into exile, unbelieving Judah rages at God. So hopefully our verses this morning become a little clear as we move into, I have four points this morning. The first point from Isaiah 8, 19 and 20. Do not allow the unfaithful to redirect your hope. 
It says, and when they say to you, inquire of the medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. We find in these verses a warning from what certainly appears to be from the unfaithful to those trusted, trusting in the Lord. It says, when they say to you, to obtain an understanding of the situation or of what is yet to come, or seek counsel of what one should do, it was not an uncommon practice of the idolatrous to engage in the mystical arts. We see such an example of this in Saul in the witch of Endor. If you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28. First Samuel 28 verses 3 through 8 says, Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Wait till you see what happens when the going gets tough. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. Sounds familiar. And his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. To read further in the account, Saul sought out the medium to get a word from Samuel, who had died. It was Saul's own disobedience to the Lord, however, that resulted in the kingdom being taken from Saul and given to David. It is in both accounts this morning that we have seen Ahaz when facing a formidable army and Saul also. Both became afraid and disheartened. Both sought protection or answers outside the Lord. So it is important to see here that the warning here in Isaiah does not say if, but when they say to you. It is with certainty that such idolatrous dissuasion was to occur and does not remain so in our day today. Should not a people inquire of their God? How quick the idolatrous are to seek of their gods who are not real. How much more then should we who are followers of Christ Seek his word. In the midst of the temptation to such dissuasive idolatry, we are told, should not a people inquire of their Lord? I, am prefer I, am, I prefer the New King James Version. I, I actually read and use the ESV more often, but I prefer the New King James Version in the translation of this portion of the verses as it says, should not a people seek their God? I find this to be more descriptive in conveying both what God's people should do in such circumstances, and to me, it conveys a greater sense of urgency and importance. If there is any seeking to be done, it most certainly should not be in mediums or worldly avenues, but straight 
to the law in the testimony, as Isaiah says in verse 20. To the revelation that God has given, not to spirits and mediums. In Old Testament times, this was through the law and the prophets. All matters were to be tried against the revealed will of God. It says in Hebrews 1, 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In the midst of their difficult circumstances, Ahaz and the ungodly will look to everything but the Lord and his word. And to allow such influence upon us as followers of Christ and on our church is an abomination. Ahaz looked to the protection of and put his trust in the Assyrians, and many went down with him. Judah would suffer. In the midst of the calamity of their situation, the faithful were warned not to turn away from God in their tribulation by turning to sorcery or mediums. No doubt we see this in our time today. In fact, one study I came across from, 19, uh, from 1920s too stated that Wicca, paganism, and folk magic, as well, as well as other New Age traditions, is one of the fastest growing spiritual paths in America. It cites that in a 1990 Trinity College study, it was estimated there were about 8,000 adherents to Wicca. In 2008, the U.S. Census Bureau figure was about 342,000. Then in a 2014 Pew Research study, it increased fourfold. And that projection says approximately 1.3 million Americans identified as Wiccan, Pagan, or New Age. And think not that it cannot infiltrate the church. I found one example. There could have been thousands. I pulled this off a website. This was an, enlighten, this was an enlightenment, a, a modern-day mystic. It says, here at Modern Day Magic, or Modern Day Mystic, we believe in taking control of one's destiny and potential for success through the power of Earth and its governing energy. We are proud to provide you with the tools that will manifest your dreams into actuality. In doing so, we are bringing forth a new age in which quantum energy-based tech is merged with everyone's ambitions to create a newly heightened reality, one in which we are living up to our fullest potential. We must not allow the unfaithful to redirect our hope, to redirect our trust, we must test everything against the word of God to his law and to his testimony, as Isaiah 8 warns. In times of calamity, in times of distress, maybe even what seems like utter chaos nowadays, we must turn to his word and his word alone. As we will see soon this morning in the last point, we must keep our eyes on Christ. This is how we stand firm in our faith, especially in difficult times. It says in Hebrews 1.1, and I'll read the rest of it that I referred to earlier. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe of the word of his power. We see in the opening that Ahaz and the people were shook, and instead of looking to God's word and God's protection, they trusted in man. And so in reaching our next point this morning, it's helpful to point out how verse 21 ends. The verse speaks of those who do not 
speak or give counsel according to the word. It says in 21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry and when they are hungry they will be enlarged and will speak contemptuously against their God. But note the end of 20 says it is because they have no dawn. In considering the common biblical symbolism with light and darkness, light here represents that which is good, truth and righteousness, while darkness symbolizes that which is false. Again, I prefer the New King James translation for the end of verse 20 that uses the word light. My ESV uses the word dawn, and that is, I believe, what Brother Marlin read is dawn. I understand this portion of the scripture and agree to an acceptable extent with Albert Barnes who stated, the word usually means the morning light, the mingled light and darkness of the aura, daybreak. It is an emblem of advancing knowledge and perhaps also of prosperity and happiness. I would replace the word happiness with joy. After calamity, as the break of day succeeds the dark night. I would alter that, though, and suggest the idea is those who do not speak according to the word, who do not seek wise counsel in the word, they are dark and have not a sprinkling of daylight, not a sprinkling of truthfulness or righteousness in them. This helps us understand the opening in verse 21 and brings us to our second point. It is the hopelessness of those who forsake the Lord. It says in 21 and 22, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. In the midst of the oppression of the Assyrians, ironically brought upon them by the hand of God because of their disobedience and lack of faith, we see here in these verses the hopeless physical and spiritual condition of the people. Verse 21 has a progression to it. It says they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. Edgar Young notes in his commentary of this, those who journey through the land will be destitute both of physical and spiritual good. The hard condition of the passers through manifests itself in hunger and famine. When famine comes, it brings with it fretting. The people will work themselves into a frenzy. Years after the fall of Assyria, we find Judah unfaithful still. In reading Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah contrast the outcome of those who do not trust in the Lord with those who do. Jeremiah 17, 1 through 8. Jeremiah 17, 1 through 8 says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars in their ashram beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, if fire is kindled, that shall burn forever. 
Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. In the contrast, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for it leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. For those who did not trust in the Lord, who forsook him, this is their gloomy hope. And as their hope diminishes, not only do they distress and fret, they escalate in speaking contemptuously against the Lord. The word used here translated in the ESV means to curse, which for those using other versions will find it was translated as curse. Forsaking the Lord has certain and definitive consequences. Job's wife suggested to Job in the midst of his difficult times such a thing. For although Job maintained his trust in the Lord despite his circumstances, she did not. It says in Job, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. This is the condition of their consequence. The hopelessness for forsaking the Lord. Admittedly, I was uncertain how to take the last portion of verse 21. And it says, and they turn their faces upward. Could take it one of two ways. Either the turning of their faces upward because of their raging against God. Looking heavenward to curse God and to question his motives. Or to look upward as in seeking out some kind of divine help. After all, they were not trusting God. Much less in the middle of their distress. In either case... Their desperation and hopeless condition was both physically and spiritually pictured in these verses in 21 and 22. Verse 22 says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will, thr- will be thrust into thick darkness. The unbelieving have no relief from their hopeless condition as they walk in darkness. Edgar Young says, to look, up, to look upward brings no help, nor is there help if one looks to earth. No matter where the wicked looks, he finds no hope. The gloom about him is unrelieved. Ahaz would not look above for a sign his descendants will look above, but all is black. There is for them no sign, for the sign has already been given. Only light can dispel the gloom of despair and desperation, but that light is not to be seen by them. There is distress of soul and distress of physical circumstances, in this distress speaks out in darkness. It is quite a descriptive picture of their hopelessness. Distress in darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust or driven into darkness. 
No one here is likely going through such a calamity as we see the people of Judah in these these verses. It is not our human nature, however, to consider our own circumstances. Excuse me, it is our human nature to consider our own circumstances, whatever they may be, as dismal. The small looks mountainous. And on this side of heaven, in the midst of significant tribulations, it can be challenging to keep our eyes on the Lord and his word, his will, and trust in him as believers. Maybe some listening here this morning are living in total darkness, seeking answers and putting your trust in everything and everywhere else but in the Lord. Walking in darkness as the people of Judah did. To be sure there are consequences for a life disobedient to the Lord. A life of sin, which verse 22 describes as darkness. Thankfully, we do not end here because God did not end here. Brings us to our third point. Despite their current condition, hope was coming. Verses Isaiah 9, 1 through 3 say, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. There would be much to unpack here. I intend, however, to stay at a higher level, unless you care to get out on Christmas Day. To begin, it's important to see that Isaiah has sandwiched in uses of past tense in these opening verses. Not as if their anguish is now gone or that something in the future is already upon them. For 8, 21 and 22 just concluded with the extent of their anguish. But it reflects the certainty to which Isaiah has of the future coming hope as the prophet of God. I'll read this again. But there will be no gloom for for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Alec Motyer notes, The eye of faith looks at all this, but affirms that, real though it is, it is not the real Reality, referring to their anguish and gloom. As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they, were, they will live by. Are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dreams shattered, and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall his past mercies, to remember his present promises, and to make that great affirmation of faith. Isaiah insists her darkness is true, but it is not the whole truth, and certainly not the fundamental truth. You have heard, and I am sure, the concept of now but not yet. God had a plan from the beginning that he set in place, that is so certain that it can be regarded as already by Isaiah to the people of Judah in the remnant. 
What a promise for those in distress and darkness. A great light, and on them has this light shone. If you recall from earlier, the contrast of light and darkness. In my preparation and studies for today, I often move back and forth between various versions. ESV, New King James, King James. I use the lexicon. I'm not a Greek student, scholar in any way, shape, or form. I can't even pronounce them most of the time. In fact, I often sometimes get corrected in just my regular use of English. And as an example, I had been referring to the use of the word pericope. Pastor Keith, Brother Keith, if you're listening, he corrected me, whispered in my ear, it's pericope. I'm like, really? How many times I've used the word pericope throughout Bible school and nobody ever corrected me and I looked it up online when I went home that day. He's right, it's pericope. Let alone pronounce these words in Greek. However, I noted that in the New King James Version, the end of verse 1 refers to as Galilee of the Gentiles. If you use the ESV, it says Galilee of the nations. The original word for nations means a foreign nation, hence Gentile. The New King James translated nations as Gentiles. And for my dear wife, Jessica, the Nueva Biblia de las Americas also translated it as Gentiles. I noted Alec Motyer states in, the, in his commentary of this verse, the substantial fact is that no one else who referred to Galilee in the Old Testament found it necessary to call attention to the Gentiles. But the Messiah is for the world. It would certainly appear then that Isaiah is taking this first opportunity to introduce the full breadth of the hope of the light that shone, and that we who have both the Old and New Testaments know for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. He does, Isaiah does begin, there's three other, four other references to Galilee of the nations. I'm not going to go to those, but if you'd like to know those, it was Isaiah 42.6. Isaiah 49.6, Isaiah 52.10, and Isaiah 63. But here in Isaiah 9, this is his first opportunity that he presents the idea of foreigners when he refers to the light. This gives us a possible understanding then of the first part of verse 9.3. You have multiplied the nation. To move from a remnant to a message of hope for the Gentiles as well, would multiply the nation and logically increase its joy. Of course, to be shown a great light, to be brought out of darkness, brings about the greatest, most complete joys of any joy that you can experience. But he goes on to say, as he says in 3, and he compares it as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil, whereby the completeness of their darkness and distress magnifies, excuse me, it is most certainly the opposite end, that's what happens when you skip a line, it is most certainly the opposite end of the spectrum from what we saw in verses 8, 21, and 22, where the whereby the completeness of their darkness and distress magnified the misery of their hunger. It says in Psalm 4, 6 through 9, There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart 
than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Contrasted to the misery in 8, 21, and 22, which compounds every other physical thing going on around them, we see the great joy experienced by those who trust in the light. And then it says in Psalm 119, 161 to 162, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. The condition, the hope that is to come, will magnify everything else. Even in the midst of trials and tribulations, the joy to be experienced, the peace to be experienced, will surpass all understanding. The opposite of that is to live in darkness. Everything is gloom and anguish. But it continues, and Isaiah continues, And this is the last point this morning. The reason for the hope and rejoicing. The following three verses all begin with a similar manner and connect to the previous by way of a four. Each of these continue in their prophetic present tense, speaking as if they have already happened. And what is the reason for the rejoicing? For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah provides the imagery of the breaking of the people's oppression as on the day of of Midian, if you turn to Judges, chapter 7, verses 15 to 18. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Who has done it? The Lord has done it. And he divided through 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, Do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Who had the victory? The Lord had the victory. I spent quite a few years in the military, and I was never given a trumpet as a weapon. But in the hands of God and God's plan... A trumpet is all God needed. But the point of the trumpet was to express upon them that it had to be the hand of God that delivered them. I would have left the military quickly had they trained me in trumpet versus M16. And I definitely would not have gone into battle with a trumpet. I was not in the army band But in regards to these verses in Isaiah, this was not a literal staff about their shoulders or a rod. No doubt the people were in great distress. And as we saw in previous verses, the greater context is not about their physical condition, but the very reason they were in this situation. Their disobedience to their God 
their unfaithfulness. Their sin and darkness was their oppressor, and they were in bondage to it. This is the yoke of bondage they were under. Taking this deliverance from this oppressed, their oppressor metaphorically best fits the context of these verses. And is it not our greatest problem? Was it not their greatest problem? Their being thrust into darkness was because of their unfaithfulness and disobedience. Ahaz and the people relied upon man, not upon God. But keep in mind, God does not promise us we will not encounter difficult situations. The life of the believer is not without persecution. It is not without mockery. It is not without lost friends, or even for some, martyrdom. Isaiah is telling them, though, of deliverance from what binds them most, their sin against a holy God. And such deliverance will bring peace, complete peace. And metaphorically described in verse 5 of Isaiah 9, just as a warrior who no longer is in need of his battle gear, the deliverer will win a decisive blow over the bondage of sin once and for all. As Isaiah has throughout these verses, he speaks of a future event as it has already occurred. And here we are today, and it did occur. For the Jews, it was a prophecy of the birth of the Messiah that they were called to faithfully look forward to. For us, it was a promise fulfilled in the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of their peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He has done this. What was previously alluded to in Isaiah 7 has been more directly and with great climax unfolded in Isaiah's prophecy. And what I'm referring to is in Isaiah 7. You don't need to turn back there. I will read it. He says, for many, most of us, excuse me, he refers to the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. He says the greatest gift of hope, excuse me, the greatest gift of hope was to be the gift of a son, born of a virgin as Isaiah already introduced in 714, but both a son excuse me, both, but both born a son and given. There is much to be understood of this last verse, so much more likely for Isaiah's hearers. For many of us, we understand how Christ is our wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, prince of peace. Over 2,000 years after his, of, of two can't speak. Over 2,000 years after his birth, as Isaiah told the people of, after his birth, death on the cross for the sins of his people, his resurrection, and now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of his people. For us as believers, we also know him as the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of the Jews, the Bread of Life, the Redeemer. He is the Christ, our Lord, Master, the Word, 
Son of God and Son of Man, Emmanuel, God with us, Messiah, Savior. And one day he will return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We celebrate the birth of Jesus tomorrow, the birth of the promised Savior. For the people of Judah, it was a promise yet to come. But it was so certain that Isaiah spoke as if it had already happened. For us, we look back. We celebrate the birth of our Savior. For some, the business of the season clouds the greatness of this event. For some, tribulations. Others, the growing wickedness of the world around us. Yet to others, maybe you know nothing of Jesus other than the story of his birth. Facts and stories. Living as Ahaz and the people of Judah in Isaiah's day, walking in darkness. Jesus had to be born for God to redeem his people. God in his zeal, as 9-7 says, by his hand foreordained his plan of redemption for sinful mankind through Christ Jesus, the birth of the King. Ephesians chapter 2. And this is where I will leave you this morning. Verses 11 to 14 in Ephesians 2. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the, un- called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The word says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We approach Christmas as believers to celebrate the birth of the Savior. And we have a gospel message that we see in the story in Luke, that it was good news to all the people, a good news we are to share because there are people walking around in this world in utter darkness because of their unfaithfulness and disobedience to the one true God. Let us celebrate what he's done in us through Christ and let us not forget those left in their darkness.